Hey everybody, thanks for listening in to Just the Basics. I'm your host, Tommy Bowles. I'm Matt Shaw. And we're keeping the beat here once a week for you. We're going to continue the series that we started last week where we're talking about our favorite, well, I guess not really our favorite, the the tunes from the jazz standards from different eras that we think you really should know if you don't already. Last week was the 1920s. This week, we're just going to continue in chronological order, and we're going to talk about the 1930s this week. This is also, in my opinion, another great era of music that the more I looked at it, the more I realized there are some great tunes written in that era that I didn't even realize were. So it was, yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun to put these lists together, I thought. Uh, this week, we're going to have Matt go first again. Yes. Kick things off. So, uh, Matt, what do you got for us first? The uh, the standard of standards. Well, first, I wanted to talk about one that um I thought was more popular than it was, and I don't know, maybe out there in the wilderness of jazz performance, it is. But when I was looking um for examples, I really couldn't find any um not not that many. Like Spotify was pretty sparse, and uh, even YouTube. It was mostly, uh, well, I don't want to say no-name people, but, you know, not, not like the greats of the past. Um, right. And no one There's that I... Most people I, like I you and me. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> of course. But, like, there's a version done by Joe Pass, which is the only one I recommend. But anyway, the song is called Beautiful Love, and uh, it's by Victor Young, along with a bunch of other names that I probably wrote the lyrics or contributed in some way. Um, I couldn't find anything uh, notable about it story-wise from its writing, although it was used in, um, Wikipedia said, The Mummy, uh, an old mummy movie, not the one with uh, What's-His-Face from the 90s. Uh, The Mummy as in like some movie in the 30s. And uh, Joe Pass said it was a Frankenstein movie, but I I guess he wasn't paying much attention to the movie. (laughs) I mean, he does kind of just sit there playing his guitar, rocking back and forth like he's in a crib. So um, I don't know how much he pays attention. Uh, he's too focused on playing a, a stupid, stupidly well. Um, the reason that I picked this one, though, is among all the incredible tunes of this era is because, well, I feel like it doesn't really get that much recognition. Um, I was just telling Tommy before the podcast that it kind of reminds me of Record May. Uh, which is a really great tune, usually played Latin. Um, yeah, Recordame was one of my favorites to play in the jazz band. Yeah, that that one's really fun. And this one is similar. Um, usually it's recorded, it sounds like a swing. But I just remember hearing it years ago. I don't even know when it was during my time at Liberty, but Mr. Spencer, my uh, our mentor, was playing a song, and it sounded really familiar to me. And, um, so I, I asked, what, what is that? I, I think I know it, but I'm not sure. And um, maybe I, I like asked him, like, maybe I've heard it in swing. And because he was playing it Latin and he was just like, it's beautiful love. Um, like, oh, huh. That doesn't ring any bells. And he gave me the chart for it. It's really easy. It's not going to challenge anyone that tries to learn it, which is one of my favorite things about a lot of these early tunes is the simplicity of the songwriting and yet the it's still a very elegant melody really really good ideas uh interesting harmonic choices i mean the chart for this one has uh an altered chord in the first line there's a there's a uh, seven sharp 11 in it there's 
half diminished chords, which I love too much. <laughs> but uh, th- there's a lot to the the uh, harmony in this song that deepens the layers beyond just a fairly simple melody. That it can swing pretty. It feels good in swing, but the the Latin feel I think really uh, does something special with it. And like I said, there weren't many audio examples that I was able to find, um, sadly. And it kind of makes me want to record a version of this and then like make an arrangement for a big band and get that recorded because I feel like this song deserves more than it's gotten. So I can only really recommend going and uh, watching. There's a uh, YouTube video of Joe Pass playing it live. He talks a little bit about about it and how he discovered it. and. Uh, him playing it is the way that he plays everything where some magical way he plays a bass line with the chords and the melody, even while he's soloing. And oh my goodness. It's amazing. It, it, the only yeah, reason it impresses me so that. much is it's like, he doesn't miss a beat. The chords keep moving as if a piano player is playing, even when he's soloing. And, uh, that, that's what really gets me when I'm watching. I'm just like, I want to be able to play like that, but I think I'm going to have to be as old as he is to get there. <laughs> Cause I can do a yeah. little bit of that. I can, I can hit some chords while I'm soloing just fine, but having it constant and that reliable and consistent throughout a solo, oof, that, that yeah. that's going to take a while. I think my favorite thing from Joe Bass is his work with Ella Fitzgerald was just the do the two of them. That stuff yeah. is just amazing. Yeah. It, I feel like he showcases his technique, but also his taste, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd I'd love to be able to get there and just have a gig like that. Even if it's me and a instrumentalist in some way, but yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of fun to to listen to that sort of thing. That's beautiful love. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever played beautiful love before. I don't know if we ever used it in gigs. Um, I played it a good deal just on my own. And, um, I don't think I, you know, I'm pretty sure that Spencer played it when he was uh, not not really touring, but, you know, when he was playing frequently with the, uh, his trio. Like we went to see him at uh, sure Rapunzel. They played it a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that he he played it there. And um, so maybe on his website, there's a, uh, a recording of them playing it, which would definitely give it justice because the recordings that I found of it are mostly like crooner singers. And as much as that's good, <laughs> I mean, right. personally, I just like finding a nice uh, arrangement done by a combo for songs that I give an example for or something really interesting. Just a straight somebody singing the song like it's nice, but a lot of the time they don't do too much with it because it's about the singer. So, right. That's true. Yeah, that, that is a good song. It's um, I've got the chart in front of me, too. It's very straightforward. The melody is nice and easy. It's easy to solo over. Yep. You can basically play through in the key of F pretty much the whole time. Mm-hmm. The only difference, the only spot is when it has those A7s in there, but that's, that's just, just uh, the D harmonic minor. So Exactly, yeah. So references to last week's stuff, or to two weeks ago stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a good tune. I definitely like that one. I think that's a good one on here. All right, so the one that I'm going to start with first is... I have a really funny story about this one. It's amazing I'm, I got as far as I did, considering my choice that I made with this song. The, the tune is Love for Sale, which is a song written by Cole Porter. 
He wrote it for a musical called The New Yorkers, and um, it was written in 1930. So it's it's kind of funny. This song is written from actually written from the viewpoint of a prostitute advertising love for sale, hence the name love for sale. It's um, a little bit different of a form. It's actually, it's still AABA, but it's actually 64 bars instead of 32. So it's a long form. It's not one that you would want to take and do a ton of solos over top of because you would never get to the end. (laughs) Um, Or maybe you would. I feel like if we did this, yeah. Well, I feel like if we did this at a gig, we'd play like AABA and then solo over B and then play the last A section to end out. Or something because 64 bars in a slow song like this is a lot. Right. But I have heard it played fast, and I'll get to that point in a second here because it's, uh, I think it's pretty interesting. The song's kind of cool because it does a typical Cole Porter thing where it goes back and forth between major and minor. So the, the best recording of it that I've heard is probably Billie Holiday's one, which is she recorded it in 1952. That's the one that really made it famous as a jazz standard, which makes sense because of who it was but a lot of other people recorded instrumental versions like Sidney Bechet and Charlie Parker and Art Tatum so most of the recordings you're going to hear of that are going to be instrumental because it's got a really good melody but you know the the lyrical content is a little interesting it's uh like it starts out I don't know it's just kind of strange when the only sound in the empty street is the heavy tread of the heavy feet that belongs to a lonesome cop I open shop Like, that's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of sad. But it's a good tune. It's really interesting. Now, for my funny story about this, I didn't know what the song was about. And (laughs) I didn't look it up because we had done it as a big band arrangement in high school. So it was just instrumental. We didn't have the vocals for it. And I just thought, well, this is a fun song. It's We played it fast, and I've got the melody for, or I've got the bass line for it written out and everything. And I had to do an audition video for Liberty. So I decided to pick a song about a prostitute to do for my audition video for a Christian university. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that I got in. Um, <laughs> I honestly had no idea at the time. I didn't think anything of it. You wouldn't if it until was Until I was in... <laughs> well, you know how I found out was not till like my junior year when uh, we were talking about stuff. I, I don't think it was you and me. I think it was... Um, I think I was talking to Mr. Parker about it. Probably. And um, I mentioned that song because I like the melody for it. He's like, you know, the song's about a prostitute, right? I was like, <laughs> uh, no, I don't didn't know that. <laughs> so amazingly enough, I still got into Liberty anyways, and I'm still here in your headphones talking to you. It wasn't. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I, I still can't believe that I didn't realize what that song was about. <laughs> So hence, Matt, you probably have not actually played it because I don't think anybody at Liberty played that song. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I'm I'm even not that familiar with how it sounds. I like I have a bit of the melody in my head because I know that I've heard uh, the Billie Holiday version that's in my head somehow. Right. Um, but I do know that well, we. I don't think I don't think we ever use it for uh, for close it. We did because it's not in the real book. Oh, yeah, it's not in the real book because the song's too long. That's true. Um, it if might it's be really long. Then, yeah, um, it might be in one of the other. I've got tons of different it songs. Is it might be in, in one of this them. one. It's in real book six. <laughs> real book. Okay, that's why. So, another interesting thing about this song too is that when Billie Holiday recorded it, 
according to this website here. So again, this is, I don't know how true this story is to the song, but apparently Billie Holiday was a prostitute at one point in time before oh. she uh, made it big as a singer. And so that's why she picked the picked to sing this song because it kind of struck a chord with her really other than her nobody else wanted to have their vocals on that song because they didn't want to be linked to that but because she already was linked to that in her past apparently she decided to sing it anyways hmm. yeah it's kind of interesting if you can find a big band arrangement of it an instrumental one you should listen to that because when they play upbeat it makes like it goes from this really sad slow kind of make you feel sick to your stomach sort of song. And that was Cole Porter's intention, I feel like, when he wrote it, to some fun, upbeat thing that you're like, huh, I could, I could groove along to this. And then that's how you make the mistake that I did of not realizing. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a fun tune. If you haven't heard it, you definitely should give it a listen. Yeah. It makes sense for the 1930s, chords are too. interesting, too. That would be fun to pull over, looking at it. Yeah, it's very harmonically interesting. It makes sense for the 1930s to have a song like that because you're coming out of the, the high of the Roaring Twenties and you're hitting that the Great Depression. So to come into a song, uh, come into an era like that and have a song that's kind of, um, you know, kind of dark and sad sounding and it makes sense for that time. Yeah, yeah. And Matt, you're right. It is a pretty interesting uh, harmonic concept on that song. So yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot. Playing it in high school, that's just yeah, I can't believe I made that mistake. <laughs> That's funny, though. I, I, well, I guess it matters who actually saw it, but um, if it was Mr. Spencer, then I'm sure that he is perfectly aware but wouldn't actually care at all. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if anyone else would have really thought about it. Well, because when I auditioned for Liberty, I came up to visit the school for one of their College for a Weekend events. Mm-hmm. And I didn't bring my bass with me because I went to the school thinking I was going to hate it because my dad made me come visit it. I didn't want to go to Liberty at first. And then when I visited it, I had a lot of fun and everything. So I decided I was going to audition, but I didn't have an instrument to audition. So I had to send in a YouTube video. And I went back a couple weeks ago and I watched that YouTube video part of it. It makes me cringe because I, I just don't know why I thought that that was a good piece to do for an audition video. Because literally, it's like six minutes of me just playing a walking bass line through a song with nothing else. Like, there's no accompaniment, there's no chords, there's no melody, there's nothing. So it's like, you can hardly tell what I'm playing. It's just basically, you hear a bunch of boom, 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 boom. It's like a bunch of quarter notes. It's like, why did I think that was good? Well, but I mean, considering it's to get into the school of music, then you're already proving you understand how to do a walking line, and we could certainly well, go I was into detail of, of why it too, works. So. Oh, that's true. But that I mean, yeah. that's sight reading, which most of uh, the school of music can't do when they show up. Yeah, um, I remember my first day in the jazz band. They put that Jaco chart in front of me, and I read it down, and they were like, "Okay, you're in." <laughs> just because I was able to read the chart. That's funny. So, yeah. Yeah, it was... I remember my first lesson, too, when uh, Mr. Spencer was like, okay, cool. Uh, you know how to read music? I said, yep. He's like, okay, play this. Then he put it down in front of me. I was like, okay, um, what do you, you want me to play the melody or the chords? He's like, whatever you can. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't remember what tune it was, but I remember just playing the melody off of, off of the chart. 
I can guarantee whatever video you'd set in is better than the uh, the crap that I, I sent in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. It was pretty awful. I mean, I did like do it like sort of a original sort of thing improvised. So I guess that's cool. I, I know that that made Spencer smile because uh, he asked uh, what it was. And I was like, I, I was mostly just playing around because I wasn't sure what to do playing alone. and and uh and he listened to it and he was like so you so you improvised some of that and it made him smile and i know that it wasn't that good but i don't think it was, it was terrible <laughs> yeah yeah it was like it, the effort was put forth and i didn't know what i was doing or what i was really talking about necessarily right now, i didn't really I understand now, improv. Let my students get away with that yeah 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 and and he uh i guess he he rather saw something or what he's just that good of a teacher <laughs> Because yeah. he put he put way more effort into me than I probably even deserved. So, yeah, I think now I would have my students do a classical piece as well as a jazz standard, just to prove both sides of the spectrum—the improvisation part of it and the sight reading and actual technique portion of the playing. I think I'd want my students to be able to do both. Now, whether or not they actually did both, like at Liberty, it was a pretty relaxed audition. Oh yeah. Some places are very strict. They're like, you can do one of these three pieces. Like, okay, you want everybody to sound the same. Sounds good to me. I mean, some schools, <laughs> they require you to, like, a, a, like, one specific song at a specific tempo in a specific arrangement, and you must do it that way and solo over it. I know there are places that require you to play over giant steps to get in, um, which yeah. is, I, I can only agree with to a certain extent, just because it's like, they're trying to get in to uh that that form of study and yeah if they're if they coming out of high over school, giant steps how on earth are they going to know how to do that properly if they weren't trained for if they weren't lucky enough to get interested in that and then trained throughout uh their childhood pretty much so it's almost like are, you're just restricting a program to people that are like in their 30s that want to go to college because I mean, mo most kids are not going to come out of high school and say, I'm going to go get a degree in jazz. <laughs> yeah. It's just not going to really yeah. happen. And the ones that can already play over giant steps probably aren't going to go to college anyways. They're going to go and... Um, get a job on a cruise ship. Yeah, they're just going to go and start playing professionally because they can. And people are always impressed by younger people playing older music. Yep. It always, I don't know how many gigs we played that... We have people come up to us. It's nice to see young people playing jazz. Like, well, if you opened your eyes, you'd see there are lots of young people playing jazz because no old people play it anymore. <laughs> That's kind of dark. <laughs> it's kind of true, though. Yeah, it, I mean, there's not a lot of older guys out there still playing jazz because most of them can't can't play anymore. That's a sad truth, I guess. Yeah, the academic portion of jazz is what saved it. This is I hate to say that, but that's also why we have a podcast. So, <laughs> oh man, this is all right. What's next on your list, Matt? Um, next, I'm going to talk about Moonlight Serenade. It's uh, from 1939, so it's just at the turn of that decade. Uh, it's apparently, Dude, we actually uh, covered all of our bases this time, as far as different years. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Mind you, spread out. Uh, it says that this one's by Mitchell Parrish. I know that it's uh it's by Glenn Miller, 
but it gives top billing to Mitchell Parrish. So I don't know who that is. When I looked this up, I didn't get any info on him, but the chart says that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, this one I wanted to include. I I was really like topsy-turvy on what to actually put in this spot because I knew what I wanted for the other two. So I was going through Willow Weep for me. The Masquerade is over. There's another one. And for some reason, it's not coming to my, my mouth right now. But oh, well. But there, there, there was a lot of tunes uh, through this decade that uh, I would talk about. But I think that it was important to mention this one because I feel like this, this is one of those songs that uh, almost is a proving ground for jazz itself. Not, not in like a proving ground sense of giant steps where people throw it at you and see if you can handle it. It's more of a uh, proving ground for the style of jazz because I feel like and if you go and listen to recordings of this, you'll notice that a lot of the time Moonlight Serenade isn't actually done in a quote unquote jazz or swing style. It's actually more of a uh, classical uh, mm-hmm. music style. It, it's done by like string quartets, uh, small combo orchestras, things like that. That's a weird thing to say, but I mean, that's what it sounds like. like classical instruments <laughs> in a very small setting. So what, I don't know what you call right. that. A, uh, um, a chamber group. There we go. Chamber orchestra. <laughs> but yeah, that that's the right word. Yeah. I think, yeah. Chambers. Right. I think it, I think it is. I'm, I'm not a classical music person. I just like listening to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, the, this song is, I mean, it's gorgeous. Uh, Glenn Miller did an incredible job with it. And the original recording is the, the one that I'd recommend one listen to. It's all the other recordings are basically trying to emulate it. And a lot of them just don't have the same feel. I, I think one of the problems a lot of musicians have, even some of the greats, is that they were trying so hard to nail uh, uh, an emulation of of a specific recording that if you try to be something, you won't be that. You'll still be you. So it would have mm-hmm. been better for a lot of these musicians to take their own approach on it. And some people do, and it's a little odd. So I don't. I think that the song can translate, but. that that's what i observed from the recordings is that uh there's a lot of attempts to get close to glenn miller's uh original recording and uh even the other recordings of glenn miller it doesn't i I think part of it is that there's that like that record spinning hum in the uh in the original that just it's this overload of nostalgia that (laughs) when you're listening to it but he he was able to play it the same way in other recordings that are a little more of a, a cleaner recording, even though I prefer that record hum recording of it. And I, I remember playing this in a, in, um, bleh, in, in big band, in, a in the ensemble. And it was one of my favorites, even though as a guitarist, I didn't really have to do anything. It's slow. It takes its good old time, mm. just lumbering along nice and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the melody is gorgeous. I feel like this is the the song for teaching a big band to uh, control their dynamics properly because I don't the melody is so simple that if you play it flat dynamically, you're not going to get much out of it when you listen back to it. But if you really manhandle uh, crescendos and 
uh, diminuendo and things like that and um, and accenting things properly without getting harsh, then I think you'll you'll get your band to um, achieve that that bit of magic and having that much power in a room. Right. A lot of bands. Yeah. I- I feel like every power. ballad is like that. Yeah, yeah. Anytime yeah, yeah. you play a song as a ballad, if you don't have those the brilliant dynamics, it really just like why did you even try? <laughs> it's like it feels like you just didn't put any effort in if you don't play any dynamics in a ballad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that this one, like I said, it's kind of, it kind of bridges the gap between this jazz orchestra playing with a classical orchestra, and it. It kind of says to classical, like, hey, I know you're not swinging stuff, but look what happens when you swing beautifully. Huh? Huh? How about that? <laughs> uh, it, 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 it is a viable form to play. Huh? 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 It sounds better than you. <laughs> um, but uh, and, uh, seriously, though, just because um, the classical realm kind of, for the most part, ignores uh, jazz style approaches. I know that it's like as soon as they do that, it's probably going to turn into jazz. But you can tell the difference between those that have come from classical and start trying to do jazz than you than you can with a lot of other. Oh things. yeah, like there there's a there's a distinct tradition that they a lot of the time don't really seem to understand, and um mm-hmm. and then they have to get deep into it enough to understand that the approach of jazz musicians is very different to classical and i feel like with glenn miller orchestra this song almost had a classical approach to playing jazz and still held true to how to play um a song swung as a ballad and have the proper dynamics the improvising uh i mean the harmonies in this are gorgeous there's no questioning that right and the melody itself is fantastic but um well the stories that i've heard from that era of big band music was that if you're if you wanted your big band to be able to sell records some record companies wouldn't actually let you swing they'd make you play it more straight so i think that's kind of where that crossover that you hear kind of lends to he kind of trying to play it more straight yeah like they're Exactly. They're trying to play it straighter for the recording. Now, I bet if we were able to hear them live, it would have been a completely different story. Probably. But for the recording's sake, you know, having it mostly straight, it probably, because um, it still swings a little bit, but I know what you, it's like, it's just a little bit more, sounds like it's a little bit more classically influenced and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where that comes from. There's a lot of restraint, and yet it still has that, uh, that swing groove and feel underneath it, which in in this song's case almost supports it. Like usually I, I would hear that and, be, and just be like, that's sad. <laughs> um, yeah. But in this one, it almost supports the way that it's because it, um, I think one of the things that you hear, uh, you hear it said, but it doesn't really make sense until you're just kind of feeling it is swinging your quarter notes. Because swing doesn't yeah. really do anything until you're in eighth notes. Because then that's when it's a very direct sound. But there's still something about mm-hmm. playing quarter notes that you can swing. Uh, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't I mean the first time that you play. Told a, me that. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you play a dotted a quarter note 
with an eighth note instead of playing your quarter notes, it's it's about the touch. There's a touch to it. Yeah, it's and it shows in this song. You can hear it when you've done it right. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Like if you listen to a really good bass player, like um, like if you listen to um Ray Brown play, he swings his quarter note. But there's, I mean, they're right up and down. They're right perfectly in time. You know exactly where you are, but man, it swings hard. Just something about it, you know? It's so stupid when someone says, swing your quarter notes. The first time somebody told me that, I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm like, how am I supposed to swing something that's literally one, two, three? Like, there's no subdivision. I can't, how do I swing it? And so I just played it the exact same way. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, But it's all about the, the feel of it. Like, mm-hmm. as far as the rhythm, the rhythm is the same, but it's where, how you accent the beat and everything that makes a difference. Yeah. I wish I could explain it better than that. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that you hear more than can describe. It's, it's kind of like playing yeah. in the pocket. It's much harder to describe playing in the pocket than it is to hear when it's done properly. That's true. That's true. I remember we tried to explain that in a podcast once. That was not easy. <laughs> it, it, it's just one of those things that even the, uh, I think the greatest musicians and teachers uh, try to explain it, and it only makes it more confusing. <laughs> kind of like listening to Bootsy Collins talk about how to play funk. He's like, you do this, and then and then you do that, and then, yeah, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> It's basically it, exactly what he said. <laughs> He's like, you, you leave some space in the middle, and yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> it was pretty great. There's this. It's a. There's a YouTube video of him talking about it, and it's hilarious because whoever made the video just took that whole you know thing and just like clipped it up and just played it over and over and over again. So it's like, you know, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> I love the internet in a way. Sometimes I hate it, but that was a moment where I loved the internet. <laughs> All right. So the next song on our list is uh, Autumn in New York, which that was written in 1934 by Vernon Duke. I know, right? That's one of those songs that just makes you smile a little bit. And you know what I'm realizing? We've picked all ballads so far pretty much the yeah. first song wasn't but the last three have been ballads oh well yeah whatever <laughs> i mean a lot of the songs from this era are, are like there are more upbeat like in the mood or it don't mean a thing uh right etc cetera, et cetera. sing yeah. sing sing the stuff that i thought about throwing in here but i'm like most people most people that don't even know jazz are familiar with those songs so right gonna talk that about was that. my thinking too or All of Me, or Have You Met Miss Jones. I mean, yep. we've talked about both of those songs before, and people know them already. Yeah. They are the more upbeat examples, but I guess we uh, kind of dug deep. Maybe we were just feeling in a sentimental mood today. <laughs> uh, that, that was, was also one. this era. There it is. There, that's the other one I was going to pick. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was also this era. I almost picked that one, but I was like, you know, everybody's heard John Coltrane's version of that, and... Love I'd be song. surprised if people haven't, you know. I prefer so the Steps I was like, Ahead yeah. version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the, uh, the so, EWI. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
there are so many good versions of that song. Or like, um, there is uh, Red Mitchell plays a really good version of it. He's a bass player who actually plays his his upright bass tuned in fifths, just like you would a cello. So instead of E A G E A D G, it's C G D um, A. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, D G D A. Yeah. It's crazy. So it's like you have to have massive hands or be incredibly fast to move across the fingerboard like that. Anyways, yeah, he started out as a cello player and just stuck with it. Um, but back to Autumn in New York. So Vernon Duke wrote it in 1934. There's been a lot of recordings of the song. Really, the only one that hit like mainstream popularity was uh, Sinatra's version in 1949. That reached number 27 on the charts, but nothing else has really been that uh, huge. But a lot of other people have done it. Billy Holiday, Bing Crosby, Sarah Vaughn, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong did a duet of it. Uh, Charlie Parker even sang it. So there are a lot of really good versions of the song. Uh, it's just it's just a really nice, pretty song. This My story about this song is this is the first one that I actually did a chord melody to. And it wasn't really that good, but... It was something I was working on in my lessons, and uh, I don't remember why we picked this song. I think it was, I, I don't know, I think it was just one that we turned to in the book, and we are like, well, hey, let's, let's just do this one. I think I remember it. It was, it was around Jericho and Mr. Spencer. I don't, I don't know if he asked for us to pick songs from a specific era, or, um, or if it was just like a general just bring recommendations but in any case the song that you brought was autumn in new york i think right if it wasn't you then someone else brought it and that was when it started with you being interested in it i did bring that tune but that's because we had been working on it in my lessons before that ah Um, so yeah i knew the song already before that that's why i brought that why i picked that one because i remember liking it so much when we worked on it in lessons uh so that yeah because you're right because we were we all made a list of like 10 songs that we wanted to do for the jazz oh for shoot the, yeah um, jazz combo i remember now 10 i threw yeah. sumo and in there and spencer do... gave me a look <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he was like we i'm not transcribing that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't have a chart and i'm not sitting down with that one i was like rats and he's like yeah, i like I it too but we're not doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i could tell he wanted to but it would have taken too much work. Well, and when we did that list, we didn't do half those songs on the list. No. Most but it was people, fun. we picked, yeah, it was a lot of fun. A lot of the stuff that we picked that we didn't even come close to recording or to playing just because of time and everything. We didn't, you know, obviously, if you have eight people in your group that all bring 10 songs, and yeah. if none of those songs cross over and most of them didn't, then that's a lot of music. Like, remember all the strange ones that the vocalist brought? Like the one about the duck, um, oh. El Pato, I think. Oh, that yeah. was weird. Yeah. There was some weird stuff that she brought. I don't know. We And the ones that she brought are the ones that we played. I was kind of <laughs> irritated about that. We did do Pick <laughs> Up the Pieces, which I was happy about. That was fun. We never performed That's it That's true. Live, that was a but, fun one. But, but it was really fun to practice. Yeah, that was one, though, that our, we didn't have as good of a horn section that semester. That's true. Um, cause that was a year that I think that was a semester that Andy was back and forth. Like he wasn't in it very much. He couldn't be cause of a seminary. Yeah, that's what it was. 
And then um, the rest of our horn section never learned how to play the song. <laughs> Which was yeah. so disappointing because I love that song. And my high school jazz band played that song too, which is another reason why I was really irritated that they couldn't learn it. Well, yeah, because I, I, I learned the melody for it, and it's not that bad. It's just I knew that that wasn't what I was supposed to do as the guitar player. I, I, I needed to play my part of the, uh, the comp in it. Anyway, Autumn right. in New York, that, we are way off from that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, how do we get to funk? Whoops. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Yeah, it was just a lot of fun playing Autumn in New York because it's such a pretty song and it's one that anytime, I don't know, it's, I, I get in mood sometimes where I just really like to play ballads and that's one of the ones that I like to pull out. It's such a pretty song, like the lyrics are Autumn in New York, why does it seem so inviting? Autumn in New York, it spells the thrill of first nighting, glittering crowds and shimmering clouds and canyons of steel, they're making me feel I'm home. It's just kind of, it's just really pretty about New York City. And it is kind of weird, though, when you're thinking about shimmering clouds and canyons of steel. I guess that's referring to the skyscrapers. Yeah, pretty good, right? It's kind of interesting. I mean, I've never really been in New York, New York City. I flew into it once and I saw all the skyscrapers and just seeing it all was magical enough. I don't, I wouldn't want to live there. I think it'd be overwhelming for me, but it was cool to see it. What in the world? My cat just leaned over and bit the piece of paper in my hand and tried to take it away from me. <laughs> that was really weird. I don't know what his problem is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't really have an emotional connection to it. I just think it's really pretty. It hasn't been, I mean, it's been recorded a lot, but it hasn't been super popular since only Sinatra's version actually reached anywhere on the top charts. So I definitely think that's a good one to listen to. Yeah, I'd love to record that one. It, it's a really... It's so mellow, and the melody really lends itself to the uh, the tone that it's putting forth with that uh, relaxed, just appreciating the uh, the yeah. beauty of uh, of the big city. And um, well, and we've I have done been it so to many New York a lot, ways. so I get it. <laughs> right. Well, and when you and I have played that song, we've played it in so many different ways. Like we've played it with you playing the melody and me playing chords behind you. We've done it, you playing the chords and me playing the melody on the electric bass. Uh-huh. We've done it as me playing the melody on the upright bass and you playing the chords. And we've also had me playing just like your typical ballad bass line on the upright bass and you playing the melody on top. It's so pretty no matter which way you spin it. We could totally do it um, Latin too. Bit of a bossa. Yeah, you could. Yeah, it would be a little bit tricky. You'd have to kind of change with notes, or you'd have to kind of change the melody rhythm a little bit because it's very, everything's on beat one on this. So you need to change it just slightly to make it fit, but it wouldn't be hard at all. (laughs) Yeah. That that could be a cool thing to do for for, uh, our listeners sometime is record a, a song as swung or uh, a ballad and then as a latin and really emphasize the changes and talk about it afterwards or something. right record that would probably be a good yeah. one for that because I, I already know exactly how i play it as a bassa but well that's, that's like would, my thing of being able to swap out the yeah. styles because of uh recording laws that we probably would have to have an original tune to do that with because if we played the audio on our podcast we'd probably get in a lot of trouble Oh, no, I, I don't mean putting it on the podcast. I mean, like, link to it on YouTube where it won't mean anything. Oh, uh, right, right. That's at, true. At, at, that won't, no one cares about that. We won't make any money off of it. <laughs> yeah, they would just demonetize the video anyways. 
Yeah, it won't matter. <laughs> and if they take it down, put one then. Right. Close, close the force <laughs> bit on YouTube forever and no one cares about it. <laughs> right. That's true. There's one thing I want to talk about, as, and one other thing in Autumn New York before we move on is there's one spot near the end of the form that the harmony is just so beautiful because it does one of my favorite things that you ever hear in any style of music. Um, it does a chromatic walk down in the melody while keeping the top note the same. Mm. It's just so awesome. Like it, it goes down in this key of F, it goes F minor seven to E minor seven to E flat minor seven. Then it goes to an A flat seven, which I know that's not really chromatic, but it still has this, and there's a C in the melody, so it still has a top melody note. But that A flat seven is just a, the E flat seven, A, a flat seven is just a two five to D flat. So it goes to D flat, but then it goes down another half step to C seven. It just, that descending motion is just, it feels just so nice. It really drives it home to finish the song out really strong and then either flip it back to the head or just close it if you want to. Yeah, I don't know. I just really that, like that motion. There's a lot going on in that to uh to go like that uh, with it going towards C. The A flat is like it's a flat six going to a Neapolitan into the C, which is a five to the original key. Uh, that mm-hmm. that's like that's a whole fat load of uh harmonic yeah. cleverness for how to get yeah. There. You have that two five to the Neapolitan, but then that Neapolitan is really just a five back to the one again. It's yep. Really cool. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I I really enjoyed that sort of harmonic content. And the thing is, is like in the key of or in the you know, an E minor seven chord doesn't really have a C in it. I mean it it does, but you know, not really. And then an E flat seven, E flat minor seven has a C in it. So it's I don't know, it just it's really nice because you're changing what not only are you changing the chord there, you're changing what mode of the chords are of that Mm-hmm. type of a minor chord that you're doing to a 13 blah, blah, blah. yeah it's it's really cool anyways uh yeah anyways let's move on so what is your next one matt mine is ironically another song about a season in a city except we're going across the big old pond to a party and that's because my last song oh, is oh yeah April in Paris. Not this. even just a season, a whole month. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Taking a trip around the uh, the year and the world all at once. But you might even, if, if you know jazz, you know this song. You know probably everything yeah. about it. And if you don't, shame, shame, shame on you. Um, I, I kind of just refused to talk about this decade without bringing up this song. It's one of my favorite pieces of all time uh let alone just the uh the song itself but the reason that this song is is uh so big and uh, by the way it comes from 1932 it was originally written by vernon duke and it was popular during that time when it was uh, so, recorded what you know you know it's kind of funny vernon duke must have a thing for seasons in different cities yep because he was also the one that wrote autumn in new york yep and it, that's literally what uh why he wrote wrote it um he was in uh well actually he was in paris and uh during april or something and uh he overheard somebody uh saying how much they loved uh april and springtime in paris and it was the most beautiful time of year there uh so he made sure to get there during that time and enjoy it and that's uh that's what inspired him for 
this song. And anyway, the the harmony here it kind of just kicks off the 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 rules right out of the door. First thing, it's an F minor six in the key of C that just starts it. And there's a D sharp in the melody. So he he's more of like, we're going to play what sounds good and um, forget any rules. So, um, no, well, the, here you go. The D sharp would be would make sense because that's the flat seven yep. of the F minor six because it's an E flat. Yep. But it, yeah, it, there, it's so cool how he does stuff like that. There's there's a lot to it that uh, it's it, it's it's about the tone. It's about what he yeah. wanted to hear when he wrote it. But uh, well, between April in Paris and Autumn in New York, I feel like Vernon Duke was just kind of like, ah, forget about his key signatures. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's do what this is what more fun. Right. This sounds which I yeah. think that's a much better way of writing. That's what I like to do when I write. It's like, sure, there are rules. Uh, if I'm stuck, I'll use the rules to get where I need to go. Or uh, if I feel like something's a bit bland, then I'll toss it. Toss in some stuff based on the rules, right? But, um, well, like, yeah, Autumn in New York is in the key of F major, but it ends on an F minor. Yeah, exactly. You can do what you want with the song, but do it. Uh, yeah, as long as it sounds good and it doesn't sound stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so this song was pretty popular during the '30s, but it became legendary um, in the '50s when Count Basie and his orchestra recorded it with the. Uh, the all-time classic uh, one more time and one more once at the ending and the trumpet player playing yeah. Pop Goes the Weasel and uh, them literally playing Jingle Bells. I don't know if they meant it for it, but they played Jingle Bells. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, that is such a legendary recording. Oh, my gosh. Now, there's something very interesting about that recording, though, and it's that Count Basie didn't actually arrange that or no one... Well, no one necessarily in his orchestra. I don't actually know if that guy was there or not. I'm sure that they knew him because he was big. Um, that arrangement is based on an arrangement by the organist Wild Bill Davis. And you can hear his recording hmm. of that. It's him, a guitar player, and a, and a drummer. So it's a typical little um, trio. And it's very obvious he's like playing at a club live or something. And every... Well, not everything, but a lot of what's there in the Count Basie arrangement you hear in his playing between him and the guitar player and the drummer in this little recording. And at the end of it, the audience is demanding for one more time. And he repeats it like three or four times. So when Count Basie does it, it's not some sort of arrangement choice. It's a callback to the uh, the arranger uh, who repeated it multiple times at the ending. And um, of course, that that recording, it already sounds like you listen to that and uh, and you're thinking about the Count Basie version and you can hear that it does not sound best in this trio. <laughs> it really doesn't. It, right. it does not lend the arrangement justice until it's put into the this extremely powerful format of the Count Basie orchestra and they are just wailing away at the tune and every every one more once is even bigger and louder and blow your face off with all those horns and it swings harder and harder every time and every time you hear it it gives me more and more chills than the last time that i heard it and uh i think that that's like the quintessential big band this is how you do it <laughs> well 
remember when we would play it, we actually would do that sometimes. We'd play it for the swing dancing gig again and be like, one more time. We'd play it again. And one oh, more yeah. once. <laughs> you got it. We couldn't it just do it without doing it. It, it. You can't. You really can't. You have to do it. So it's you enlightened me, though. I didn't know about that right. whole arrangement thing. It's really interesting to listen to. Like the uh, There's nuances that are in the big bands that are like reassigned from what the guitarist does, um, from what Wild Bill is playing. And it all translates over and then Count Basie adds to it. So like the pop goes the weasel thing. Right. That's not in Wild Bill's version. Um, the Jingle Bells thing. Do you think that that part was was actually written out? Like the whole pop goes the weasel thing. Do you think that was written out or do you think that was improvised? It's in the improvised section. When you look at, uh, other recordings of it live and stuff, that's, that's just a trumpet solo. Right. Well, and every time that, like when you hear people do it now, they always play the pop goes the weasel. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I don't think that that part is an arranged part because that's that's a spot for improv. And that only makes it even more impressive. Now, I imagine the recording was done with the intention of playing that a lot of uh, a lot of these songs. Well, a lot of it, times when you quote something, you go into it knowing, hey, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. You look at your buddy next and be like, hey, check this out. This is going to be hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, it might have been like the third or fourth take. And he knew exactly what he was doing with it, but it was still improvised in the first place. I, I've done right. that in recordings where eventually just to get a good recording, I just use kind of a roadmap in my mind of things I'm doing in that solo to get a good recording mm-hmm. done. But when I play live, no, nothing's planned. I'm just going to play and have fun. <laughs> right. Which is what you see That's in, in uh, recordings of this live. If you haven't heard this, go listen to it. Count Basie's version. That's the one that you want to go and listen yeah. to. Um, I'm, I know that there's probably a ton of different versions of this, but uh, and you should listen to it, and you can do a lot with this song if you want to. But um, yeah, that, that's the version like, that you want to hear to really get the feeling of this era and um, mm-hmm. and what you can take out of. Well, these and that's songs, what this really. era was. The big the big thing of this era, like you you did it more so than me with your song selections for today is it's the big band era, really. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of big band stuff. So that's like a quintessential song of the 30s and 40s, man. It's amazing. I always enjoy playing that song, too. Like, we used to play that for the swing dancing gig, the Lynchburg Lindy Hop. Mm-hmm. We'd play that song all the time when we went there because it's a great song for it. And people dance. So anytime you have a song that people dance to, man, we just would play that over. Every time we went, we'd play something like that. Yeah, I remember it, playing it, it in it the big band great. at Liberty too. Were you in the big band when we played it there? When we played this, yeah, you, you were okay. I gotcha. Yeah, I couldn't uh, remember. I, it was it was my job to be Freddie Green for this one. <laughs> oh yeah, that, basically that whole semester, I think it was basically count count basic stuff. It was a it was a basic year. It was fun and I loved it. It gave me something to do. It's not difficult, but it gave me something to do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the big band stuff would be like guitar, don't play. Like, what's the point of having the guitar player then? <laughs> yeah. At least at least the Freddie Green stuff, you got to just go chonk, 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 chonk. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a recording on, on. Uh, online of while Bill Davis he's playing Satin Doll with uh Duke Ellington um mm. and his his band. And um it honestly made me realize how similar the songs are. Like the way that he plays his solo kind of reminds me of the things he did in the April in Paris arrangement. <laughs> It's it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they are different songs, and um, they are all 
wonderful on their own right and they're not ripping off of each other at all but there's still that uh that same tonality that is just a wonderful time and this is a good song for hearing that swinging the quarter notes because there's not a lot of eighth notes here right really isn't that's true. And they kind of play the quarter notes almost behind the beat slightly. Mm-hmm. It's that bum, 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 beat, um. Like, it's almost behind the beat, like, but not. It's really, it's, you know, when you listen to it, you can hear it, but it, it's so cool. Mm-hmm. You're right. That is a perfect example of swinging the quarter notes. They take their good old time getting through it. Yeah, exactly. So they're not in a hurry, but yet it's like, so perfect it just sounds awesome all right so the next song i guess this is our last song on the list yep um is uh another cole porter tune apparently i just really like cole porter because well apparently we really like cole porter and vernon Dave vernon duke because vernon davis wow he's a football player wow that's a completely wrong name um because we did two vernon duke tunes and two cole porter tunes um this one is uh called just one of those things uh-huh. It was written in 1935. It's funny because he wrote it for a musical called Jubilee, and uh, he had that he had everything for that written um, by. Let's see, was it September? Oh no, no, it says early part of 1935. So he had it written really early in the year, and um, they called him in September and were like, "Hey, we need another song for this uh, for this musical, and it's we need it like tomorrow." So he wrote it that night. So it's pretty pretty interesting. He actually had written another song with the same title that never got used, but apparently the songs are very different. I don't know. I didn't listen to them both. Mm. But this song, just one of those things, is just a fun song. It's pretty upbeat. It's pretty interesting. Everybody has recorded it. Um, Mel Torme, Sinatra, Doris Day, Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, Fitzgerald, Anita O'Day. Judy Garland, I mean, Nat King Cole, basically everybody that you can think of has recorded at some point in time. Oscar Peterson even did, Freddie Hubbard, Dave Brubeck. So it's such a great tune. But the recommendation I have for listening to it is actually a little bit different. It's um a more modern artist, uh, definitely a more modern artist. She went to Manhattan School of Music. Her name's Kate Davis. Uh-huh. She is a uh, bassist and vocalist. and she um she can sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh pretty interesting because I first heard her because of some cover that she did with Postmodern Jukebox. Mm-hmm. And uh started listening to her music after that. And her jazz stuff is awesome. Now she was working on a different on another project that's more of her personal taste, she said. So it's very different than her jazz out, out record. But the her arrangement of just one of those things is is really fun. It's upbeat. It's uh, got lots of vocal inflection in it, which I really appreciate that in a vocalist. Uh-huh. But the lyrics of this are really cool, too. It was just one of those things, just one of those crazy flings, one of those bells that now and then rings, just one of those things. Just one of those nights, one of those fabulous nights. It tripped to the moon on gossamer wings, just one of those things. If we thought a bit about it, about the end of it, when we started painting the town, we'd have been aware that our love affair was too hot not to cool down. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty interesting. And then it ends, so goodbye, goodbye, bye-bye, goodbye. Here's hoping that we meet now and then. It's great fun, but it was just one of those things. Yeah, I know, kind of, that's bye-bye, bye. 
bye, bye, bye. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. no. I can't believe I did that. Um, <laughs> but it's Tommy just Timberlake. a fun song. Yeah, right. That has nothing to do. He has nothing to do with this. He has nothing to do with this era of music. That's for sure. <laughs> it's just a fun song. I, I enjoy it. I think it's it's upbeat. It's fun to listen to. And the lyrics are, I mean, it's about a, sound, sounds to me like it's about a one night stand, but it's a very, um, or a short fling sort of thing, but it's really kind of a fun way to put it. I mean, it's not like it's about heartbreak or I hate them or whatever. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, we should have realized this before we got into it. Oh well, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean though? <laughs> Maybe I'll see you next April in Paris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or autumn in New York. Uh, who knows? Yeah, Maybe. <laughs> Or in the moonlight, if you serenade. <laughs> oh, gosh. At least the love wasn't for sale. And the love isn't very beautiful. <laughs> oh! Oh, that, man, it's that, been that, full that. circle. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All week. Actually, only once a week. We keep the beat once a week for you. Have a good night, See you next week. Ah, good night. <laughs> Oh man, it's just a fun song though. I like it. I think it's uh, it's upbeat, fun to listen to. It it's just a fun tune. I mean, it's not super complex or anything like that, but it doesn't have to be. It's not like Autumn in New York or any of those other, some of those other songs we talked about where the harmony is just insane. But it's just it's fun. It lays really well, and it's fun to listen to. It's easy to sing along with. So those are my three. There we go. All right, um, that'll do. Pick. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have a listening recommendation for the week? But we kind of just spent the last hour giving listening recommendations. That's true. They've, they've gotten two hours worth of go and listen to stuff. <laughs> yeah. Between last week and this week, we've just been telling you guys to listen nonstop. But it's go fun. Listen to and I really like these. that don't mean a thing because that's from this era. era. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And that's a good one. Too, I felt honestly. like we weren't that like terrible it. at that one. Yeah. I like yeah. it. I still like listening to it sometimes. I'm like, hey, there's some cool stuff in there. Like, we'd be better yeah. now, but of course we would. <laughs> right. And if we would have had better equipment to actually record a real quality video. Yeah. Like, if, if any of you go listen to that, I'm sorry. We, we were poor people. <laughs> yeah. We just use whatever we could find that would work. And yeah. Yeah. That's it was not really crappy recordings. Yeah. At this point, I think we actually have some of the gear we would need to do a better quality recording, but not sure. really that much better. <laughs> It'd be better. We could definitely pull off some stuff, but uh, location, location, location. Exactly, exactly. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe we can get something together. I'd love to record a duo album. Yeah. We just got to figure out some songs, write some music for it and everything. And that's that'd be cool. I was talking to Michaela about it and I was like, you know, what if I took a trip and met Matt halfway somewhere, just like in South Carolina or something. And we just like, just took like a weekend just to go up and play music and left you at home. She's like, well, I wouldn't really want to be at home, but I guess I wouldn't really want to be there either. Cause I wouldn't have anything to do. <laughs> like, that's exactly right. Cause we wouldn't go out. <laughs> We'd basically order in pizza and play music. <laughs> we'll go live at Spencer's for a week. And just record, record, yeah. record. Use oh, his gosh. guitars and stuff. Well, we'd eat good, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we would definitely eat good. Oh, man. 
All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening again. Um, if you have any other recommendations as far as the 1930s that we didn't get to, go ahead and let us know. Um, yeah. Tweet us, send it to us on Instagram or Facebook or wherever that it is that you are friends with us. If you have our phone numbers, text us, though. I'm not giving out my phone number. <laughs> Nine. Oh, man. Um, so I did want to, I was looking at our podcast stats. We actually do have a listener in the UK that keeps popping back up again. So whoever Hello. you are, shout out to you. That's awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope that means that you actually like it and you're not just chance, by chance be like, oh, maybe I'll give them one more shot and just see. I hope you actually like it. And if you do, please share it with people. And if you hate <laughs> it, share us anyway. Yeah, maybe somebody else will like it, or maybe we'll get a yeah. bunch of people that hate us, because, I mean, even if yeah, we just have, yeah. like, a thousand people that listen to it every week that hate it, it's still a thousand people that listen to it, so it's still fun for me. <laughs> a lot of jazz guys were boxers, so put up them dukes. Bring it on. <laughs> as long as you keep coming Robin back, Reed. we'll keep fighting. <laughs> we don't mind. We'll keep putting up more content, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to keep listening, whether you like it or not. <laughs> oh, man. All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.